Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for joining me today. Today my guest is Terry Blackhawk, Executive Director and Founder of Inside Out Literary Arts Project in Detroit. This is a Writers in the Schools program that serves students in the Detroit Public Schools. She's also a former school teacher in the Detroit Public School System and has four books to her credit, um, Trio, Voices from the Myths, Body and Field, Greatest Hits, 1990-2003, and Escape Artist, which won the John Striardi Prize and is her most recent. Her honors include, in addition to the Charity Prize, the Foley Poetry Award, a National Endowment for the Humanities Teacher Scholar Award, the Michigan Governor's Award in Arts Education, and the Michigan Council for the Arts and Cultural Affairs Artist-in-Residence Grant. It's great to have you, Terry. Thanks for joining me Thank today. Thank you, Ashley. Wonderful to be here. Came all the way out from Detroit <laughs> through the pounding rain. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's only a forty-five minute drive, but it seems like a whole other world. Exactly, <laughs> it's a transition there somewhere. Somewhere on M fourteen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, as is our usual, I wonder if you'd start us out with a poem. Be happy to. If you'll read from the Escape Artist, how about the first poem in the okay. volume? The first poem. What the story weaves, the spinner tells. When I look out from inside the dream, and the space of the dream shines between us, I see you there, shining, on the other side. The dream is a tale, a story I tell, drawing us into a new space, encircling us in common light. When everything vanishes but the light of memory, what will protect us inside our lines, this darkly echoing space? Will it be the red handprint of our dreams hovering over our heads, this thread of a tail raveling, or the way I see your eyes shining? Fisherman, you haul your nets in the shining evening, your straining limbs pollinated by light. Princess, you descend from the tower into the tail, crumple, rise, redressed, victorious. Inside our story, we do not live in grace, but dream of transformation, a new path to that space in the grasses where we reassemble our bones, pace backward, then reclaim the panther whose shining teeth dismembered the dimensions of our dream. Third child, Grimm's little girl had it right. Light is the only way to fill us from the inside out. The match in her apron pocket, the tail a bright window against the black forest. We tell and grow new with every telling, amazed by the space we shape, the way we regard one another inside it. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. That's the first poem from Escape Artist, which won the Charity Prize and um, is also in its second printing, I believe. Yes, amazingly. How exciting. <laughs> right. I, I, I so rarely hear of that happening in the poetry world. Right. I was <laughs> astonished. <laughs> Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, you wrote some poems when you were um, a child and um, then sort of abandoned writing poetry at some point. And after a 26-year hiatus, you returned and that thus began your career as a bona fide poet? Exactly, <laughs> I suppose, yes. What got you started again? Well, actually, it came from uh, teaching writing. And I was teaching creative writing 
in Mumford High School. I had just transferred from middle school to teaching high school, and that was kind of a transformative time for me because the the world of the high school is much different. Middle school, you have to be very practical. You have to be on top of all kinds of things. The high school opened up a bit for me, and our um, English department was doing a little in-house publication of, of student writing, and our department had said, well, now I know you all have poems yourselves that you could add to our booklet, and I didn't have a poem, but I thought I had a poem because I had written something several years before that I had scribbled down and put in a dresser drawer. So I started looking for that, and I started um, to write a poem about looking for a poem on my dresser. And it was a really enormous moment, and someone later described it for me as a muse attack. But uh, <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's I know. Great. It was like, muse attack. <laughs> so um, that was my first poem after a long time, and uh, it's actually going to come out in my next book. It's gone through a lot of stages in 15 or 16 years, but... <laughs> But Still nice. something alive in it. Mm-hmm. So that's when it started. And then did you sort of, there was this Shazam moment, the muse attack, and mm-hmm. then did you kind of sit down and, and begin writing sort of in earnest, or did um, was it a while before you kind of said, oh, I'm going to ser- pursue this seriously? Well, I uh, that first year or so, I was almost afraid to start writing. You know, it was like scary. And uh, what's the scary part? Do you just like it wouldn't happen again? What had happened the first time was something that was one of a kind uh, excitement. Um, <clears throat> but I did um, write for a while, and then I started pursuing it. So it, it sort of it came it became serious pretty quickly. And is this something you could work with um, your students and you kind of share the process with them as your students were becoming writers, you were becoming a writer as well? Totally. And uh, someone told me later that uh, recently, because I was describing this period in my life, and she said, well, you fell in love. And it was really that uh, kind of excitement in the classroom where I would write with, along with the students and we free writing. I think free writing is really the, the best way to get anything going. And so I would share the little things that came up in my free writes with them. And, of course, the focus was always on them, but there was just this intense excitement for me at the same time. Well, that must be contagious. I, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of rubs I off. I hope so. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about the poems in Escape Artist and okay. your other poems as well. Um, your range of subject matter and theme is is very broad, um, from mythology to um, places in Southeast Asia to um, artifacts from other parts of the world, Anasazi pottery, um, Indonesian puppet dolls, um, birds are birds everywhere. Are big. <laughs> birds are very big. <laughs> Do uh, you? are from California and um, have been living in Detroit for some years now. You taught there for a long time before um, you founded Inside Out and began running that um, mm-hmm. full-time. Where is it that your material comes from? Is it from personal experiences around the world and in different places? Or um, how do these little bits find their way into the center stage of your preoccupation? Yeah, um, well... Uh, it's some of it is memory. The, uh, the poems in Escape Artist include a number of poems of the uh, 1965 after them because I, as a student at Antioch College, I traveled and lived in Europe for almost two years. So uh, a number of poems come from that. 
I've always been fascinated by visual art, and uh, Body and Field has a section devoted to visual art. Escape Artist has two sections. So that whole intersection with uh, looking at a painting or an object and getting involved with it as a kind of transcendent thing has been a source for me. Um, Memory. It's odd. I mean, there's no real connective hook. I mean, some of the poems have a sense of um, striving for justice. I think there's a theme like uh, that's a theme in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to your students about how to find their things to latch onto or the subject for their poems, do you send them in particular places or do they have a good sense of of what they want to put on the page already? Uh, it's, you know, it's been such a while, um, but thinking back on it, giving them different things to spark their imaginations would be the way I would suggest it. I, um, and free writing again, or just sort of arbitrary combinations of words and experiences. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily set them in a particular direction. Often we would write in response to other poems, um, it's a very varied thing. The curriculum is. Is it the pro- uh, is the process though? I guess what I'm trying to get at is mm-hmm. is your own process for coming up with material and working with your poems a similar process that you teach, or is it um, more a the muse kind of strikes process that is then hard to translate? And there are other bits of pedagogy that you throw out there for folks. Yeah, I, th- I throw the p- pedagogy out, but I guess being just sort of having a hyper awareness of where something is alive. Uh, for me, for the students, what intrigues you? Uh, often going through and writing what, underlining and highlighting the things that have surprised you in a quick writing, that's usually got a lot of energy and is worth pursuing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you figure out why and what kind of associations you can make, say, with, you know, feather and popsicle or something, you know. <laughs> right. How do those two things come together? <laughs> Good juxtaposition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Let's put free verse and received form in okay. <laughs> There's another <laughs> on the table, another juxtaposition. Another part of the toolkit. Yes, right. exactly. Um, many the the poem that you read at the beginning mm-hmm. of the show, um, I've heard described as a curtailed sestina, exactly. um, which is a received form. And mm-hmm. there are some sonnets and another sestina and a guzzle-like poem in this book. And um, you work both in free verse and with received forms. How do you approach your decisions there? whether or not to use a received form and what you find, um, how you find that it enables your work versus um, bounds it in ways that you want to strike out against. I, I, yeah, I don't really think of myself as working in form all that much, but I guess I kind of do. Um, it, it kind of is along the way things will seem to be interesting enough to play with or put in form. I don't think any of these pieces started out necessarily, except the guzzle really did. It was a very intentional form from the beginning. Um, the sonnet was sort of a half, it's, it's a kind of broken sonnet in and of itself. Um, the one very interesting thing was the Sestina that tells the seal skin story. I was looking for end words because, you know, you have the six repeating words. And I, one of the ones I wanted to use was skull. And having six skulls 
show up and show up. This is whoa too much. And so I looked up, looked in the dictionary. I double checked that skull was a form of a ship, or of a little boat rather, and that was very evocative for the theme of the story. But then when I found sculp, which is a word I did not know, S-C-U-L-P, which actually means a pelt or a skin, it was it was just astonishing. So that was a wonderful little way to go and to see that the words had given me, the pattern had given me that reason to follow the form. Mm-hmm. And when you're not working in a received form, how do you think about form on the page? Is it is it visual, or do mm-hmm. the poems sort of cry out for um, the shape that they take? I, I really think that's that's true. Uh, my my new book um, has a lot of it deals with a lot of grief, and there's a lot of broken form, and uh, almost like to the edge of not making syntactical sense and sort of compressing syntax in a couple of places and that's not normal for me but I do like the way a poem looks visually that's important to me and um, I even did one poem which was in chersets and they drop you know in the third one everyone I was just obsessive about making every one of those third lines four syllables long (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like a puzzle you know. Yeah. Mm. Have you ever had just incredible surprises? I mean, you, you mentioned um, the poem called The Seal Wife, which is in section three of this book, The mm-hmm. Escape Artist, um, that <clears throat> as you were trying to determine which six words or which words you would use mm-hmm. for the end of, of those lines, um, you came across skull and then sculpt and skull mm-hmm. the boat, not just skull mm-hmm. the, the bone. Um, and that there were, so there was this discovery that happened as you were sent down. Have you found um, really sort of monumental, sort of muse-striking kinds of insights as you've played with form, or um, have you sort of worked with that as part of your toolkit? I I wish I could say there were more of those insights, but I don't think they're that (laughs) easy to come by, particularly if you're not working regularly, which I don't have the luxury of doing. But uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say that, that that's interesting to me about the regularly. How now that you are, I mean, you work. At, we'll talk a little bit in the next section about, uh, or in the last section of the show about Inside Out Detroit. But you have a more than full time job, and when mm-hmm. you were teaching as a high school teacher, you also had a more than full time job. Do you have a particular practice with your writing, or do you write on little bits of paper and then kind of come back to it? And I mean, you, you have four publications out and um, another one on the way, and um, so it's not as if one little bit comes out every now and then. You actually mm-hmm. are producing quite a bit. How do how do you squeeze that in? Well, it, it's it's odd. Um, I guess I do more than I think I do, and uh, I don't really have a a ritual practice. I've always envied writers who say, yes, I get up at five in the morning and I work for two hours. <laughs> you know, and, and I've been given advice, you know, you should show up at the poetry factory and <laughs> in case see what's there. To drop by. Right? <laughs> but I, I just haven't had that uh, ability. But I think uh, I do, I use my computer a lot and I do a lot of almost sort of automatic writing and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let it sit for a while and then go back and Oh, you know, that has some possibilities. So I think the less intentional it is when it starts, the better. Whenever you can fit it in. 
Well, that's a good place to pause and okay. take a brief break. Right. Uh-huh. You're tuned in to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Terry Blackhawk. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Terry Blackhawk. We're talking about her work, um, her four books, but in particular the most recent escape artist um, out in its second printing, which is just so exciting. So exciting. (laughs) Yay. Yay, poetry readers. (laughs) Yay, poets who write books that people buy and buy again. Um, really wonderful. So, would you read another poem for us from the book? How about um, Burmese go- girls sold into prostitution in Thailand? Certainly. This has an epigraph. Um, <coughs> Burmese. I'll, I'll say a little bit about this poem first, which is that um, I saw a um, documentary on Frontline, I believe in um, the late 90s uh, on on PBS and it was um, interviews with these young women in their early teens really for the most part who had been um, kind of shanghaied into becoming prostitutes in Thailand and I later learned out because I didn't tune in at the very beginning of the program that they were um, sent away because their families in Burma were obliged somehow to the drug dealers, either through addiction or whatever, so the girls were given over as payment. And um, so there's an epigraph in here from one of the girls. And speaking of form, this this poem is written in all one long sentence. And um, I broke it, and you'll probably hear it when I read it, but the a number of the lines end in either she is or the word nothing. And the epigraph is, We make our story something to envy, so we are not left with nothing. Burmese girls sold into prostitution in Thailand. In in order that her parents not go deeper into debt, she does not kill herself. She is the bargain, the chip. She evens the odds, even though she cannot speak the language Thai. It misaligns her tongue, sounds oily to her ears, the tongues of men, the forcing of them, hundreds, thousands. How many places can they find on her? The body has only so many openings, and she loses value quickly, once, twice, maybe three times she can be passed off as a virgin, even as she faints, even as she counts the bricks in the windowless walls, corridors where she never sees the sun unless to settle the madam's score. She is arrested, hauled out from the underground cells. Then only the quiet ones are not redeemed, the ones who do not know how to smile at men. But she is ransomed back to the metal bed, the cement 
front floor, the men again and again, especially the drunks frighten her, so she feels nothing, nothing when the child moves inside her, nothing when the poison she takes flattens her belly so that another girl will never be born to turn eleven or twelve into nothing of value but the story she makes even when the fatigue claims her and she is coated with sores and sent back to her village where she is whispered about, no friends, nothing but these mascarid eyes, this fringed cloth, embroidered with tales of luxury rides, bringing the city to the village in a voice hardened to the waist the man in her dreams who appears dressed in red brings, until fevers overtake her and her mouth turns dry and she is so thin the wind blows through her until she is parched, barely bones, and so little flesh left for the pyre, but they burn her body anyway, let flames rise around her, the heel, the strongest glowing coal, a searing eye watching back at them a long time as they burn all that is hers, the city clothes, the plastic shoes, the drinking cup. Thank you. You mentioned in the first part of the show that a sense of justice runs through mm -hmm. um, your work, and in particular the book Escape Artist. And the review of Escape, the Escape Artist, uh, or rather of Escape Artist by Kay Murphy begins, um, Terry Blackhawk's Escape Artist explores the theme of confinement and liberation in poems that test the limits and constraints of both formal and free verse. And um, this, the material there is obviously um, quite difficult and, and gives a voice in some senses to um, women who would not necessarily be doing so themselves. I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about how you feel about um, that um, process or that um, po sort of politics and art. <laughs> mm, big one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so we have yes. a little time. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm not real fond of poems that seem to be presented from on from the top of soap boxes. I really think that that has to be organic to the subject and organic to the process and not to um you know rouse the troops with one's poems i th I think that's different from the act of writing a poem um, but there are themes that really um do pull on me, and so I do try to address them in, in a number of poems, and it's kind of almost, I guess, an emotional reaction. I mean, I was just stunned when I saw that documentary, and I, I, I very seldom will just go off in a kind of trance into writing, but after I saw that documentary, I just walked over to the Sat computer down. and started, started writing, you know, so, um, but it comes up. I mean, there are a number of... Um, poems in, in this book that have to do with sort of an awareness of the Holocaust because looking back on it, I was 20 when I was in Europe. That was in 1965. The Holocaust was only 20 years over but not really over at all and uh, when I was growing up it seemed like that was ancient history and then all of a sudden it was in the life stories of a lot of people because you know it was right there and it so um, so there's that kind of awareness. And even in writing about art that um, I like to do so well, the 
for some reason the um, the Chagall poem of the violinist that was used for the fiddler on the roof kind of symbol um, that appealed to me and I, I was in the Guggenheim and started writing about that and then I realized that you know there's this whole strand of anti-Semitism and um, that that piece of art really responds to so that found its way into the poem with the little story about Mahler and the Frere Jacques being an anti-Semitic song and that sort of thing and there's a note in the in the book explaining that. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think we have a responsibility as poets to I don't know to speak and to be about more than just about ourselves, even though there it's very much about ourselves when we write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and this issue of um, sort of compassion and um, struggling with what might be termed and what's often termed good and evil and, mm-hmm. and finds its way into much of her work, whether it's in response to painting and in, in ekphrastic poems or um, as in this response to the documentary about the Burmese prostitutes in Thailand. And, and even one of your poems, um, Capture, I believe it's called, um, is about the, deals with the escape myth of Daedalus. Have I got the right poem? Uh, or Compassion, Compassion for the Minotaur. Compassion for the Minotaur, yes. yes. Uh-huh. Um, deals with similar themes, mm-hmm. but in a classical That's true. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, because actually, um, you know, Icarus was kind of victimized by the situation, and the, the whole m- myth of the Minotaur f- absolutely fascinates me, and I have in Trio a long poem about Pasiphae, the mother of the Minotaur. The Minotaur shows up in Body and Field. And in Body well. and Field, and in fact, I I had to kind of put uh, pull some labyrinth poems out of Body and Field, and so they're in Escape Artist, because a friend of mine suggested, you know, you might not want the labyrinth to overwhelm your first book. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. <laughs> so, uh, so that it is. A, it is a lot about um, fairness. I mean, Pasiphae is one of those female characters from the myths who is, um, you know, painted as sort of a monster, like Medusa and Amadea, and um, and yet they are fierce in their own self-definition, and that's that appeals to me, <laughs> you know, as a modern-day woman. <laughs> <laughs> so. Now, you sort of, do you, are there clear categories of good and evil, I guess I want to get to, um, in the different ways in which you sort of deal with these issues that are, that have great emotional impact and that you feel a responsibility to sort of address, uh, are you able to kind of stand on one side and stand there unambiguously or, or how do you work that into your, I mean, you, you said you're not a fan of the poem that has someone standing on a soapbox, mm-hmm. which would indicate that, um, to me in part, that not only are you not one who would want to stand on the soapbox, but you're working with the ambiguity that that's in the situation. Um, in the poem you just read, Burmese girls sold into prostitution in Thailand, you mentioned in the introduction to the poem that parents were in some way indebted and therefore these girls sacrificed for their families, mm-hmm. um, which is a very complicated notion. It's it, it, Whether you then think prostitution is difficult, or, you know, there, there there's a... You can't sort of approach that 
easel. You're simply. Mm-hmm. Um, do you use poetry to sort of figure out how you stand and where you stand? I'm not so sure I do. Um, I think, I mean, a lot of things come up in the poem that sort of instruct you. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, with this, I mean, the girls are, um, at the end, they're kind of, even when they're sick, because they a lot of them die of AIDS, which I hope came through as a, the reason for the tragedies, but they are kind of flaunting their their worldliness when they come back. City shoes, city, city clothes, shoes, mascara mm-hmm, eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is. It's it is very um, it is very complicated. But I I do think I want um, readers to see that there is a, there is justice in the world and there is injustice. And um, I want them to, but I want them to feel it and to experience it rather than sort of have the lesson pointed out. But I think it's an internal changing that has to happen to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I really don't think I... I, I really don't um, want to be seen as un, um, as not complicit in this whole scene myself I mean if there is a sense of self it's a there's a criticalness toward the shiksa on the the uh, kibbutz poem or Mm -hmm. the um, the tourist in the Ecuador poem who's kind of this naive uh, character and not understanding the complexities of the world that she's sort of within her privilege, able to visit and make a story out of. <laughs> well, and and working with that complicity, sort of putting yourself into the poems in a way that um, implicates you as well, mm-hmm. um, perhaps helps move away from the soapbox so th- that this isn't about, it's, it's we're sort of avoiding that trap of being a tourism in other people's pain, which is something right. that I've heard said about mm-hmm. poetry that can be called political, which some of your poems, I think, can very clearly be called, you know, or would easily, someone could easily say that about them, not that that's how they, I've seen them couched or the way I would actually couch them. The books don't seem to strike me as sort of political books, mm-hmm. but the poem, for example, that you just read seems... Highly, it's pretty it's highly politicized. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, it sort of stands out above the others. Yeah, it's not a lot like that poem, but but there's another poem in uh, Body and Field about um, that I wrote in response to visiting the Kit Carson Museum in uh, Taos, New Mexico, and learning about his role in the Navajo Trail of Tears, and then the Indian woman that who was who. He had several children with, and her story being left out. I mean, it, that was. Uh, I don't know if you felt that was kind of didactic or not, but it was. Uh, you know, I was. I was clearly responding to that. Some history that's history, not history. Yeah, told mm-hmm, exactly <laughs> hasn't made it into history. Right. Right. Well, we're going to take a short break. Okay. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show. My guest today is Terry Blackhawk. We'll be right back. Assim como quem 
Good afternoon. We're back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Terry Blackhawk. But not only is Terry a poet, she is also the founder of the Writers in the Schools program, Inside Out Detroit, um, Inside Out Detroit or Inside Out Literary, Literary Arts, Arts Project. Project. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've, I've got all kinds of shorthand in my <laughs> head about the program um, with, and a program that I'm an enormous fan of. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the program and how you, how, how why? You were a high school teacher and before that a middle school teacher and um, then suddenly there's this wonderful program in Detroit. <laughs> well, it's not so suddenly, but we are celebrating our 12th year this year. Our gala will be May 16th. And uh, is this a full disclosure moment, Ashley? (laughs) We're very, very thrilled to have uh, Ashley and her fellow MFA student, Peter Meischel, and Danielle Danielle Lazarin Lazarin, uh, and Tayaba Hussein, all as MFA students in our program, um, Civitas Fellows All, thanks to the university's generosity, and they have been... um, working in our programs this year. And um, so we're having our gala uh, on May 16th, and the gala is a celebration of the entire year's program uh, that's been going on now in 23 schools. How did it start? How did it happen? Well, <laughs> it all goes back to that muse moment. <laughs> right, the big, the big muse attack. Right, yeah. Well, before we talk a little, mm-hmm. talk about that that moment. Um, I just want to sort of define in these 23 schools. We have mm-hmm. elementary school, middle schools, and high schools. Correct. Mm-hmm. A writer, professional writer, goes into the schools and works with classes. Uh, throughout the year and then publishes a literary magazine of the student work and mm-hmm. that student work will be celebrated at this gala. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell, there we Right. <laughs> so uh, we started out in high schools because that's where I had started teaching and I was able to, fortunately, um, given a grant uh, by a funder who wanted to um, give back to his alma mater, which was Mumford High School, and to his city, Detroit, and uh, we had been in contact, and um, all of a sudden I was given the opportunity to imagine a propose, imagine a, a, a program, and so it came out of the concept that a uh, real writers r- living, <laughs> as on the show, right. or, you know, the living writers, the living writers. <laughs> Professional writers, people who identify themselves as writers, should teach children to write, that the creative process belongs in the classroom, and that people who are immersed in it are the very best models for kids. So I, when I was still um, a teacher myself, I would bring in these real writers, and I could see the magic that would happen even in a short visit or you know a few, a few visits at a time. So that's one premise. The other premise is that publication is the outgrowth of the, of the writing process, and it should be made real for students, and that they should see their work... Um, in print, and that the another premise, the third is that you celebrate that, so that you build community around the students and around their um, their expressions, their voices, 
because uh, often so much of writing instruction is about being correct and, you know, you shall never use the pronoun I, I mean. <laughs> and, and, um, well, and furthermore, that you shouldn't say what you think or feel. Exactly. I'm having a bad day. <laughs> no, that's not where we're writing about. <laughs> exactly. So, so the, this is a program that encourages children to trust themselves and challenges them to write in the very best way that they can and then celebrates them for it. So uh, it began in five high schools when I had this um, benefactor. He's a U of M alumnus, Robert Shea, founder of New Line Cinema, who um, just it was just total happenstance that we our lives intersected. But um, with that... Um, first grant, I worked with four other high school teachers who, like myself, were either writers or really loved writing and understood and, you know, had a feeling for the writing process. And so we started in these five schools, and um, it's gone through a lot of evolution and uh, grown kind of um, in fits and spurts. Uh, From five schools, we went up to seven or eight to 11, and I, I can't remember the exact way it all developed, but at a certain point along the way, an elementary school principal came up to me and she said, now, Dr. Blackhawk, you know that we can do this in our schools, too. And I was, uh, you know, that was not where I had been doing my work with children. Well, your work had been in middle school and and high school. Right. And my teaching of writing particularly was was high High school. school. Mm -hmm. But uh, it turned out that um, third graders are just great to work with and so well, that was my experience that was your experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm with 4th, 5th and 6th graders mm-hmm. this year and when you told me I was going to be with 4th, 5th and 6th graders this year I said oh <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> really? how do I do that <laughs> yeah. are, they, are they people <laughs> <laughs> exactly so but we, we had some wonderful writers working with us and um I think it's clear from your experiences too that being with children in this way is very very nurturing and uh enhancing of the life experience of the writers, too. It is. It goes both ways. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I hope that the students have gotten even a fraction of what I feel like I have gotten out of yeah. being able to work and learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, the one student came in one day and said, I don't like to write in old cars, or ride in old cars. And I was like, well, then write about the way old mm-hmm. cars drive you. And, and that he just wrote this beautiful piece out of uh-huh. that. And, yeah. and it made me think about, well, what happens if you don't? You know, mm-hmm. what, what do you do then? And Mm-hmm. Really enormously inspiring. Now, the program is also, in addition to sort of working with and celebrating the students and um, giving many benefits to the writers who work with them, there it also is is touching Detroit. There's a poem a week, poem, poem a day, poem a day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. program. We were in our second year of a poem a day, and uh, we actually we picked up this idea from our mentor sister program uh, the mothership i should say in houston texas writers in the schools that um has been mentoring not just inside out but a number of other writers in schools programs around the country and i'll plug wits in a moment but uh, we picked up a poem a day when we went down to have a, a sort of a sharing and um development sen- seminar for our national program and what it is is we put a poem every day during the month of April from our students in public places and in the schools. And uh, this year we have these cl- clever little flip charts so that you know somebody in a restaurant doesn't have to move a piece of paper around, but all they have to do is turn over 
uh, flip the, flip flip to the, next the flip poem. script, as you might say. Yeah. So you've got uh, uh, poems by first graders, poems up through through twelfth graders, and everyone celebrates National Poetry Month. And please go to our website, listeners, and vote for your favorite poem. You can go to www.insideoutdetroit.org, and after the end of April, you can sign on and vote, and your the winning poet will be celebrated at the gala on May, May 16th. 16th at the Rooster Tail. So it's a big party. We have um, we'll have about 550 people uh, every every school. We have 23 schools, and they will have two tables of parents, children, teachers, inside-out writers, and friends. And we give awards in poetry and visual art and even graphic design because now some of the literary magazines, we're bringing out 23 titles um, this year. I think eight, nine, ten of them are designed by high school students. So, And that's also um, it's kind of a long-held dream that the books would be uh, designed by designed and actually created by the students. Well, there's much, there, the artwork in the books is by the students. So exactly. in addition to the poems, there's mm-hmm. there's artwork, the cover art, and the inside art, and now the design. Exactly, and the cover, the art is just beautiful. We're we're so pleased to bring to the public the the beautiful thoughts and the incredible creativity of young people in the Detroit public schools. It's not a story that gets told enough. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Now, the prizes that will be awarded for the winning um, poems, and not mm-hmm. only from the poem a day, but from there's another contest that will be judged from each of the schools, um, or from the schools, those are uh, scholarship awards for school? Well, that was a one-year-only oh, okay. uh, program that you and Peter judged for us last year, but we give a, um, a monetary prize for the best high school poem, and that is judged by Naomi Long Magit, who is the poet laureate of the city of Detroit and who has been publishing African-American writers for about 30-some years. She founded Lotus Press, and Detroit is the home of Lotus Press and also Broadside Press and some of the premier African-American publishing in the country had its birth in Detroit. So we're really proud. We've had a long friendship with Naomi and every year she comes and presents the Lotus Press High School Poetry Award uh, and gives it personally to the student. Well, wonderful. I'm I'm glad we got to squeeze a little bit about that into uh-huh. your interview. It's about time for us to oh, wrap up. Oh, it's time. It okay. is. So um, before we go, though, I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about your next um, book. You have, oh, okay. you have a book that's about... Um, about to be done. It's on its way. It will be coming out in April of 07, so it's about a year from now, by a new press. I'm very excited to be part of this. It's Marrick Press, M-A-R-I-C-K, and they're starting up in the in Detroit in Gross Point. Uh, Pete Marcus, who's one of our Inside Out writers and a wonderful, extraordinary writer in his own right, is editing the press and um, for the press. My book is called The Dropped Hand, and it's a lot of poems about loss <laughs> this time of life. <laughs> but what can I say? But um, got to write what the muse sends you, whatever it sends you, <laughs> whatever form. Exactly. I may write them. I'm not sure I want to read too many of them. But no, no, I'm really happy with it, and, I'm, and it's it's good to have it 
on its way. I, I, it has opened up a space now for me to write some new things. <coughs> Wonderful. Well, my guest today has been Terry Blackhawk. Terry, thank you so much for joining My pleasure, Ashley. Really thank a you. treat to have you. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing the wonderful job that he always does. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Archives for The Living Writer Show are now available at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Um, you can uh, subscribe to iPod. Uh, iTunes podcasts through iTunes or um, stream right off the website. Next week, my guest will be Robert Hershon. Stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David, and the Sports Report is next. WCBN 88.3 FM's Daily Sports Report. Centers in front to Ortmeier, he shoots, he scores! Jed Ortmeier in the slot from John Shania, and Michigan on top, one to nothing, less than a minute in. And a good uh, Wednesday afternoon, everybody, the middle of the work week with uh, Ravi and Ted. I'm Rob. As uh, we get you set for the daily uh, sports report, we'll start, Ravi, with Michigan, where the baseball team's in a lot of trouble. The Michigan baseball team uh, struggling today. They are in an afternoon game right now against Toledo. The score right now is 6-1. to one. Toledo, eight hits and six runs. Only three of them earned Michigan with an error. 